Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Sleep and Relax ASMR. This episode we are reading the Wikipedia page for PG Woodhouse. This is a series that we call ASM Articles. Basically we just pick a person, place, event, you name it, uh, and we learn about it together. For some of you, you like to learn about these things. I certainly like to learn about um, these different uh, people, places, uh, events. Uh, for some of you, it's so boring, you just fall asleep. So it's a win-win as far as I'm concerned. So let's just jump into it. Sir Pelham Grenville Woodhouse was an English author and one of the most widely read humorists of the 20th century. Born in Guildford, the son of a British magistrate based in Hong Kong, Woodhouse spent happy teenage years at Dulwich College, to which he remained devoted all his life. After leaving school, he was employed by a bank, but disliked the work and turned to writing in his spare time. His early novels were mostly school stories, but he later switched to comic fiction, creating several regular characters who became familiar to the public over the years. They include the jolly gentleman of leisure, Bertie Wooster, and his sagacious valet Jeeves, the immaculate and loquacious Smith, Smith, Lord Emsworth, and the Blandings Castle set. <clears throat> the oldest member with stories about golf and Mr. Moliner with tall tales on, uh, on subjects ranging from bibulous bishops to megalomaniac movie moguls. moguls. I was about to say mo mongrels. Most of Woodhouse's fiction is set in England, although he spent much of his life in the U.S. and used New York and Hollywood as settings for some of his novels and short stories. He wrote a series of Broadway musical comedies during and after First World War, together with Guy Bolton and Jerome Kern, um, and Jerome Kern that played an important part in the development of the American musical. He began in the 1930s writing for MGM in Hollywood. In a 1931 interview, his naive re revelations of incompetence and extravagance in the studios caused a furor. 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 In the same decade, his literary career reached a new peak. In 1934, Woodhouse moved to France for tax reasons. In 1940, he was taken prisoner at Le Touquet by the invading Germans and interned for nearly a year. After his release, he made six broadcasts from German radio in Berlin to the U.S., which had not yet entered the war. The talks were comic and apolitical, but his broadcastings, uh, his broadcasting over enemy radio prompted anger and strident controversy in Britain and a threat of prosecution. Woodhouse never returned to England. From 1947 until his death, he lived in the U.S., taking dual British-American citizenship in 1955. He was a prolific writer throughout his life, publishing more than 90 books, 40 plays, 200 short stories, and other writings between 1902 and 1974. He died in 1975 at the age of 93 in Southampton, New York. Woodhouse worked extensively on his books, sometimes having two or more in preparation simultaneously. He would take up to two years to build a plot and write a scenario of about 30,000 words. After the scenario was complete, he would write the story. 
Early in his career, he would produce a novel in about three months, but he slowed in old age to around six months. Still quite an uh, uh, amazing feat, especially if you consider how so many writers get writer's block. And I mean, I've, I've understood some writers uh, finish novels in a year, two years. Um, so He used a mixture of Edwardian slang, quotations from and allusions to numerous poets and several literary techniques to produce a prose style that has been compared with comic poetry and musical comedy. Some critics of Woodhouse have considered his work flippant, but among his fans and former are former British prime ministers and many of his fellow writers. Life and career, early years. Woodhouse was born in Guildford, Surrey, the third son of Henry Ernest Woodhouse, a magistrate resident in the British colony of Hong Kong, and his wife Eleanor, daughter of the Reverend John Bathurst Dean. The Woodhouses, who trace their ancestry back to the 13th century, belong to a collateral branch of the family of the Earls of Kimberley. Eleanor Woodhouse was also of ancient aristocratic ancestry. She was visiting her sister in Guildford when Woodhouse was born there prematurely. The boy was baptized at the Church of St. Nicholas Guildford and was named after his godfather, Pelham von Donop. Woodhouse wrote in 1957, If you ask me to tell you frankly if I like the name Pelham Grenville Woodhouse, I must confess that I do not. I was named after a godfather, and not a thing to show for it, but a small silver mug which I lost in 1897. The first name was rapidly elided to Plum, the name by which Woodhouse became known to family and friends. Mother and son sailed for Hong Kong, where for his first two years, Woodhouse was raised by a Chinese ama, a nurse, alongside his elder brothers Peveril, Peveril yeah, and Armine. Maybe Armine. Armine is how I guess they say that. When he was two... The brothers were brought to England, where they were placed under the care of an English nanny in a house adjoining that of Eleanor's father and mother. The boy's parents returned to Hong Kong and became virtual strangers to their sons. Such an arrangement was then normal for middle-class families based in the colonies. The lack of parental contact and the harsh regime of some of those in the Ayoko Parentis left permanent emotional scars on many children from similar backgrounds, including the writer's Thackeray, Osaki Kipling, Osaki, Kipling, and Walpole. Woodhouse was more fortunate. His nanny, Emma Roper, was strict but not unkind, and both with her and later at his different schools, Woodhouse had a generally happy childhood. His recollection was that it went like a breeze from start to finish with everybody I met understanding me perfectly. Quote, end quote, I suppose. The biographer Robert McCrum suggests that nonetheless, Woodhouse's isolation from his parents left a psychological mark, causing him to avoid emotional engagements in both life and in his works. Another biographer, Francis Donaldson, writes, quote, Deprived so early, not merely of maternal love, but of home life and even a stable background, Woodhouse consoled himself from the youngest age in an imaginary world of his own, end quote. In 1886, the brothers were sent to the Dame School in Croydon, where they spent three years. Peveril was then found to have a, quote, weak chest, end quote, 
sea air was described, and the three boys were moved to Elizabeth College on the island of Guernsey. In 1891, Woodhouse went on to Malvern House Preparatory School in Kent, which concentrated on preparing its pupils for its entry to the Royal Navy. His father had planned a naval career for him, but the boy's eyesight was found to be too poor for it. He was unimpressed by the school's narrow curriculum and zealous discipline. He later parodied it in his novels, The Bertie Wooster, or excuse me, with Bertie Wooster, recalling his early years as a pupil at a penitentiary with the outward guise of a prep school called Malvern House. So he totally uh, roasted Malvern House. Throughout their school years, the brothers went, uh, were sent to stay during the holidays with various uncles and aunts from both sides of the family. In the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, Ian Sprout counts 20 aunts and considered that they played an important part not only in Woodhouse's early life, but thinly disguised in his mature novels as a formidable aunt who dominate the action in the Wooster, Blandings, and other stories. The boys had 15 uncles, four of whom were clergymen. Sprout writes that they inspired Woodhouse's, quote, pious but fallible curates, vicars and bishops, of which he wrote with friendly irreverence but without mockery, end quote. At the age of 12, in 1894, to his great joy, Woodhouse was able to follow his brother Armine to Dulwich College. He was entirely at home there. Donaldson comments that Dulwich gave him for the first time, quote, some continu- con- continuity and a stable and ordered life, end quote. He loved the camaraderie. It's a little bit bigger. He loved the camaraderie, uh, distinguished himself at cricket, rugby, and boxing, and was a good, if not consistently diligent, student. The headmaster at the time was A. H. Gilks, a respected classicist who, ha- who was a strong influence on Woodhouse. In a study of Woodhouse's works, Richard Usborne argues that, quote, only a writer who was himself a scholar and had had his face ground into Latin and Greek uh, as a boy could sustain the complex consequences of subordinate clauses sometimes found in Woodhouse's comic prose, end quote. A little bit of a tongue twister, that one. Maybe just for me. Woodhouse's six years at Dulwich were among the happiest of his life. Quote, to me, the years between 1894 and 1900 were like heaven, end quote. In addition to his sporting achievements, he was a good singer and enjoyed taking part in school concerts. His literary learnings found an outlet in editing a school magazine, the Alenian. For the rest of his life, he remained devoted to the school. The biographer Barry Phelps writes that Woodhouse, quote, loved the college as much as he loved anything or anybody. Reluctant banker, budding writer, 1900 through 1908. Woodhouse expected to follow Armine to the University of Oxford, but the family's finances took a turn for the worst at the crucial moment. Ernest Woodhouse had retired in 1895, and his pension was paid in rupees. Fluctuation against the pound reduced its value in Britain. Woodhouse recalled, quote, The wolf was not actually whining at the door, and there was always a little something in the kitty for the butcher and the grocer, but the finances would not run to anything in the nature of a splash, end quote. 
and set up a university career in September 1900, Woodhouse was engaged in a junior position in the London office of the Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank. He was unsuited to it and found the work baffling and uncongenial. He later wrote a humorous account of his experience at the bank, but at the time he longed for the end of each working day, when he could return to his rented lodgings in Chelsea and write. Uh, what did I do here? There we go. At first he concentrated, with some success, on serious articles about school sports for for Public School Magazine. In November 1900, his first comic piece, Men Who Missed Their Own Weddings, was accepted by Titbits, which I guess was a uh, magazine here. A new magazine for boys, the captain provided further well-paid opportunities, and during his two years at the bank, Woodhouse had 80 pieces published in a total of nine magazines. Very impressive. Very prolific writer, obviously. In 1901, with the help of former Dulwich master William Beach Thomas, Woodhouse secured an appointment, at first temporary and later permanent, writing for the Globe's popular By the Way column. He held the post until 1909. At around the same time, his first novel was published, a school story called The Pot Hunters, serialized incomplete in public school magazine in 1902 and issued in full in hardback in September. He resigned from the bank that month and devoted himself to writing full-time. Between the publication of The Pot Hunters, 1902, and that of Mike in 1909, Woodhouse wrote eight novels and co-wrote another two. The critic R.D.B. French writes that of Woodhouse's work from, his per from this period, almost all that deserves to survive is a school fiction. Looking back in the 1950s, Woodhouse viewed these as his apprentice years. Quote, I was practically in swaddling, yeah, in swaddling clothes and it is extremely credible to me that I was able to write it all, end quote. From his boyhood, Woodhouse had been fas fascinated by America, which he conceived as a land of romance. He yearned to visit the country, and by 1904 he had earned enough to do so. In April, he sailed to New York, which he found greatly to his liking. He noted in his diary, quote, In New York, gathering experience... Uh, in New York gathering experience, worth many guineas in the future, but none for the moment, end quote. This prediction proved correct. Few British writers had first-hand experience of the U.S., and his articles about life in New York brought him higher than usual fees. He later recalled in 19, that in, he later recalled that, quote, in 1904, anyone in London writing in the London... Okay, there we go. Sorry. Quote, In 1904, anyone in the London writing world who had been to America was regarded with awe and looked upon as an authority on that terra incognita. After that trip to New York, I was a man who counted. My income rose like a rocketing pheasant. End quote. Woodhouse's other new venture in 1904 was writing for the stage. Towards the end of the year, the, liberal, the libertist... Owen Hall invited him to contribute an additional lyric for a musical comedy, Sergeant Brew. Woodhouse had loved theater since his first visit, age 13, while Gilbert and Sullivan's patience had made him drunk with ecstasy. His lyric for Hall, Put Me in My Little Cell, was a Gilbertian number for a trio of comic crooks with music by Frederick Rosé. It was well received and launched Woodhouse 
on a career as a theater writer that spanned three decades. Although it made little impact on his first publication, the 1906 novel Love Among the Chickens contained what French calls the author's first original comic creation, Stanley Featherstonehaw Eukridge. The character, an amoral bungling opportunist, is partly based on Woodhouse's Globe colleague Herbert Westbrook. The two collaborated between 1907 and 1913 on two books, two music hall sketches, and a play titled Brother Alfred. Woodhouse would return to the character in short stories over the next six decades. Smith, Blandings, Wooster, and Jeeves, 1908 through 1915. Woodhouse's early period as a writer came to an end in 1908 with the serialization of The Lost Lambs, published the following year in book, um, in book form as the second half of the novel Mike. The work begins as a conventional school story, but Woodhouse introduces a new and strikingly original character, Smith, whose creation both Evelyn Waugh and George Orwell regarded as a watershed in Woodhouse's development. Woodhouse said that he based Smith on the hotelier and impresario Rupert Doyle Cart. Quote, the only thing in my literary career which was handed to me on a silver plate with watercress around it, end quote. Woodhouse wrote in the 1970s that a cousin of his who had been at the school with Cart told him of the letter's monocle, studied suavity and stateliness of speech, all of which Woodhouse adopted for his new character. Smith featured in three novels, Smith in the City, 1910, a burlesque of banking, Smith, journalist, 1915, set New York, and Leave it to Smith, 1923, set at Blanding's Castle. In May 1909, Woodhouse made a second visit to New York, where he sold two short stories to Cosmopolitan and Collier, Colliers for a total of $500, a much higher fee than he had commanded previously. He resigned from the Globe and stayed in New York for nearly a year. He sold many more stories, but none of the American publications offered a permanent relationship and guaranteed income. Woodhouse returned to England in late 1910, rejoining the Globe and also contributing regularly to the Strand magazine. Between then and the outbreak of the First World War in 1914, he revisited America very frequently. Woodhouse was in New York when the war began. Ineligible for military service because of his poor eyesight, he remained in the U.S. throughout the war, detached from the conflict in Europe and absorbed in his theatrical and literary concerns. In, 1914, in September 1914, he married Ethel May Wayman, an English widow. The marriage proved happy and lifelong. Ethel's personality was in contrast with her husband's. He was shy and impractical. She was gregarious, decisive, and well-organized. In Sprout's phrase, she, quote, took charge of Woodhouse's life and made certain that he had the peace and quiet he needed to write, end quote. There were no children of the marriage, but Woodhouse came to love Ethel's daughter, Leonora, and legally adopted her. Woodhouse experimented with different genres of fiction in these years. His Smith, journalist, uh, mixing comedy with social comment on Slumlord, Landlords, and Racketeers was published in 1915. In the same year, the, Sunday, the Saturday Evening Post paid $3,500 to serialize Something New, the first of what became a series of novels set at Blanding's Castle. It was published in hardbacks in the U.S. and the U.K. in, the same year, in that same year. Later in that same year, 
Extricating Young Gussie, the first story about Bertie and Jeeves, was published. These stories introduced two sets of characters about whom Woodhouse wrote for the rest of his life. The Blandings Castle stories set in an English stately home depict the attempts of the placid Lord Emsworth to evade the many distractions around him, which include successive pairs of young lovers, the machinations of his exuberant brother Galahad, the demands of his domineering sisters and super-efficient secretaries, and anything detrimental to his prize, so the Empress of Blandings. Broadway, 1915-1919 A third milestone in Woodhouse's life came towards the end of 1915. His old songwriting partner, Jerome Kern, introduced him to the writer Guy Bolton, who became Woodhouse's closest friend and regular collaborator. Bolton and Kern had a musical, Very Good Eddie, running at the Princess Theater in New York. The show was successful, but they thought the song lyrics weak and invited Woodhouse to join them on the successor. This was Miss Springtime, 1916, which ran for 227 performances, a good run by the standards of the day. The team produced several more successes, including Leave It to Jane, Oh Boy, and Oh Lady Lady, and Woodhouse and Bolton wrote a few more shows with other composers. Uh, unlike his original model, Gilbert, Woodhouse preferred the music to be written first, fitting his words into the melodies. Donaldson suggests that this is the reason why the lyrics have largely been overlooked in recent years. They fit the music perfectly, but do not stand on their own in verse form as Gilbert's do. 1920. 1920s, I should say. In the years after the war, Woodhouse steadily increases sales, polishes existing characters, and introduces new ones. Bertie and Jeeves, Lord, Zems Lord Emsworth and his circle, and Eucharist appeared in novels and short stories. Smith made his fourth and last appearance. Two new characters were the oldest member narrating his series of golfing stories, and Mr. Moliner telling his particular tall tales to fellow patrons of the bar at the Angler's Rest. Various other young men about town appear in short stories about members of the Drones Club. The Woodhouse, the Woodhouses returned to England, where they had a house in London for some years, but Woodhouse continued to cross the Atlantic frequently, spending substantial periods in New York. He continued to work in the theater. During the 1920s, he collaborated on nine musical comedies produced on Broadway or in the West End including the long-running Sally, The Cabaret Girl, and Rosalie. He also wrote non-musical plays, including The Plays of the Thing, adapted from the adapted from Ferenc Molnar, uh, and A Damsel in Distress. Though never a naturally gregarious man, Woodhouse was more sociable in the 1920s than at other periods. Donaldson lists among them, among those with whom he was on friendly terms, writers including A. A. Milne, Ian Hay, Frederick Lonsdale, and E. Phillips Oppenheim, and stage performers including George Grossmith Jr., Heather Thatcher, and Dorothy Dixon. Hollywood, 1929-31 through 31. There have been films of Woodhouse stories since 1915, when A Gentleman of Leisure was based on his 1910 novel of the same name. Further screen adaptations of his books were made between then and 1927, 
but it was not until 1929 that Woodhouse went to Hollywood, where Bolton was working as a highly paid writer for Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, MGM. Ethel was taken with uh, Ethel was taken with both the financial and social aspects of Hollywood life, and she negotiated a contract with MGM on her husband's behalf, under which he would be paid two thousand dollars a week. The large salary was particularly welcome because the couple had lost considerable sums in the Wall Street crash of 1929. The contract started in May 1930, but the studio found little for Woodhouse to do, and he had spare time to write a novel and nine short stories. He commented, quote, It's odd how soon one comes to look on every minute as wasted that it's given to earning one salary. End quote. Even when the studio found a project for him to work on, the interventions of committees and constant rewriting by numerous contract authors meant that his ideas were rarely used. In a 2005 study of Woodhouse in Hollywood, Brian Taves writes that um, those three French girls in 1930 was, quote, as close to a success as Woodhouse was to have at MGM. His only other credits were minimal, and the other projects he worked on were not produced, end quote. Woodhouse's contract ended after a year and was not renewed. Bestseller in 1930s During the 1930s, Woodhouse's theatrical work tailed off. He wrote or adapted four plays for the West End, um, for the West End, Leave It to Smith, which he adapted in collaboration with Ian Hay, who was the only one to have a long run. Um, his practice of dividing his time between Britain and America caused Woodhouse difficulty with the tax authorities of both countries. Both the UK Inland Revenue and the US Internal Revenue Service sought to tax him as a resident. After lengthy negotiations, the matter was settled but the Woodhouses decided to change their residential status beyond doubt by moving to France, where they bought a house near Le Touquet. Le Touc. Le Touquetin. Le Touc. I can't quite tell what it says. In northern France. In 1936, Woodhouse created the last of his regular cast of principal characters, Lord Ickenham, otherwise known, otherwise known as Uncle Fred, who, in Usborne's words, quote, leads the dance in four novels and a short story. A warring dynamo of misrule. End quote. Uh, let's see here. Other leading literary figures who admired Woodhouse were A.E. Houseman, Max Beerbaum, and Hilaire Belloc. On the radio and in print, Belloc called Woodhouse, quote, the best writer of our time, the best living writer of English, the head of my profession, end quote. It's high praise. Oh. Second World War, internment and broadcasts. At the start of the Second World War, Woodhouse and his wife remained at their Le Touquet, Le Touquet house, where during the Phony War, he worked on Joy in the Morning. The Phony War ended with the start of the Battle of France on May 10, 1940. With the advance of the Germans, the nearby Royal Air Force base withdrew. Woodhouse was offered the sole spare seat in one of the fighter aircraft, but he turned down their opportunity, as it would have meant leaving behind Ethel and their dog. On 21st of May, 1940, with German troops advancing through northern France, the Woodhouses decided to drive to Portugal and fly from there to the U.S. Two miles from their home, their car broke down, so they returned and borrowed a car from a neighbor. With the routes blocked with refugees, they returned home again. 
The Germans occupied Le Touquet on 22nd of May 1940, and, Wood, and the Woodhouses had to report to the authorities daily. After two months of occupation, the Germans interned all male enemy nationals under 60, and Woodhouse was sent to a former prison in Luce a suburb of Lille, on July 21st. Ethel remained in Le Touquet. The internees were placed four to a cell, each of which had been designed for one man. One bed was available per cell, which made available to the eldest man, not Woodhouse, who slept on the granite floor. The prisoners were not kept long in Lewis before they were transporting cattle trucks to, a former, to former barracks in Liege, which was run by a prison by the SS. After a week, the men were transferred to Huy in Liège, Belgium, where they were incarcerated in the local citadel. They remained there until September 1940, when they were transported to Tost in Upper Silesia, then Germany, now Tojek in Poland. Woodhouse's family and friends had not had any news of his location after the fall of France, but an article from an Associated Press reporter who had visited Tost in December 1940 led to pressure on the German authorities to release the novelist. This included a petition from influential people in the U.S. Senator W. Warm Barber presented it to the German ambassador. Although his captors refused to release him, Woodhouse was provided with a typewriter and, to pass time, he wrote Money in the Bank. Throughout his time in Tost, he, spent, he sent postcards to the U.S. literary agent asking for $5 to be sent to various people in Canada mentioning his name. These were the families of Canadian prisoners of war, and the news from Woodhouse was the first indication that their sons were alive and well. Woodhouse risked severe punishment for the communication, but, but managed to evade the German censor. On June 21, 1941, while he was in the middle of playing a game of cricket, Woodhouse received a visit from two members of the Gestapo. He was given ten minutes to pack his things before he was taken to the Hotel Adlon, a top luxury hotel in Berlin. He stayed there at his own expense, Royalties from the German editions of his books had been put into a special frozen bank account at the outset of the war, and Woodhouse was permitted to draw upon his money he had earned while staying in Berlin. He was thus released from internment a few months before his 60th birthday, the age at which civilian internees were released by the Nazis. Shortly afterwards, Woodhouse was, in the word of Phelps, cleverly trapped into making five broadcasts to the U.S. via German radio, with Berlin-based Berlin-based correspondent of the Columbia Broadcasting System. The broadcast aired on June 28th, 9th, 23rd, uh, on, excuse me, June 28th, July 9th, 23rd, and 30th, and August 6th, were titled How to Be an Internee Without Previous Training and comprised humorous anecdotes about Woodhouse's experience as a prisoner, including some gentle mockings of captors. Aftermath. Reactions and Investigation The reaction in Britain to Woodhouse's broadcast was hostile, and he was reviled as a traitor, collaborator, Nazi propagandist, and a coward. Although Phelps observes, Although many of those who decried his actions had not heard the content of the programs, a front-page article in the Daily Mirror stated that Woodhouse lived luxuriously because Britain laughed with him, but when the laughter was out of his country's heart, he was not ready to share her suffering. He hadn't the guts even to stick it out in the internment camp. Under July 5th, on July 15th, the journalist William Connor, under his pen name Cassandra, broadcast a postscript of the news program rallying, railing against Woodhouse. 
According to the Times, the broadcast, quote, provoked a storm of complaint from listeners all over the country, end quote. The Woodhouses remained in Germany until September 1943, when Allied bombings uh, led to the couple being allowed to move back to Paris. They were living there when the city was liberated on August 25, 1944. Woodhouse reported to the American authorities the following day, asking them to inform the British of his whereabouts. He was subsequently visited by Malcolm Mugridge, recently arrived in Paris as an intelligence officer with MI6. The young officer quickly came to like Woodhouse, and he considered the question of treasonable behavior as ludicrous. He slum he summed it up as a writer he summed up the writer as quote ill fitted to live in an age of ideological conflict. Uh, let's see here. On September 9th, Woodhouse was visited by an MI five officer and former barrister Major Edward Cusson, who formally investigated him who formally investigated him, a process that stretched over four days. On September twenty eighth, Cusson filled filed his report, which states that, in regard to the broadcast, Woodhouse's behavior, quote, has been unwise, but advised against further action. So, he got into quite some stuff. American Exile, 1946-75 through 75. Having secured American visas in July 1946, the Woodhouses made preparations to return to New York. They were delayed by Ethel's insistence on acquiring suitable new clothes, and by Woodhouse's wish to finish writing his current novel, The Mating Season in the peace of the French court, countryside. In April 1947, they sailed to New York, where Woodhouse was relieved at the friendly reception he received from the large press contingent waiting his arrival. Ellis secured a comfortable penthouse apartment in Manhattan's Upper East Side, but Woodhouse was not at ease. The New York that he had known before the war was much changed. The magazines that had paid lavishly for his stories were in decline, and those that remained were not much interested in him. He was... Uh, sounded out about writing for Broadway, but he was not at home in the post-war theater. Woodhouse remained unsettled until the until he and Ethel left New York City for suburban Long Island. Bolton and his wife lived in the prosperous hamlet of Remensburg, part of the South Hampton Resort area of Long Island, 77 miles east of Manhattan. Woodhouse stayed with them frequently, and the 19 and in 1952 he and Ethel bought a house nearby. They lived at Remsenburg for the rest of their lives. Although Ethel made a return to visit a return visit to England in 1948 to shop and visit family and friends, Woodhouse never left America after his arrival in 1947. It was not until 1965 that the British government indicated privately that he could return without fear of legal proceedings, and by then he felt too old to make the journey. In 1955, Woodhouse became an American citizen though he remained a British subject and was therefore still eligible for UK state honors. He was considered for the award of knighthood three times from 1967, but the honor was twice blocked by British officials. So. Cool. We'll finish with this last section. Uh, episode has gone a little bit long, but we'll just to sum up, uh, really grasp the idea of P.G. Woodhouse. Writing, technique, and approach. Before starting a book, Woodhouse would write up to 400 pages of notes bringing together an outline of the plot. He acknowledged that, quote, It is the plot, it is the plots that I find so hard to work out. It takes such a long time to work one out, end quote. He always completed the plot before working on a specific character action. 
For a novel, the note writing process could take up to two years, and he would usually have two or more novels in preparation simultaneously. After he had completed his notes, he would draw up a fuller scenario of about 30,000 words, which ensured plot holes were avoided and allowed for the dialogue to begin to develop. He preferred working between 4 and 7 p.m., but never after dinner, and would work seven days a week. In his younger years, he would write around two or 3,000 words a day, although he slowed as he aged, so that in his 90s he would produce 1,000. Woodhouse believed that one of the factors that made his stories humorous was his view of life, and he stated, quote, If you take life fairly easily, then you take a humorous view of things. It's probably because you were born that way, end quote. He carried this view through it, through into his writing, describing the approach as, quote, making the thing a sort of musical comedy without music and ignoring real life altogether, end quote. Most of Woodhouse's canon is set in an undated period around the 1920s and 30s. The critic Anthony Lejeune describes the setting of Woodhouse's novels, such as The Drones Club and Blanding's Castle, as a fairyland. When dealing with the dialogue in his novels, Woodhouse would consider the book's character as if they were actors in a play, ensuring that the main roles were kept suitably employed throughout the storyline, which must be strong. If they aren't in interesting situations, characters can't be major characters, not even if you have the rest of the troupe talk their heads off about them. Interesting. And that was it. That was P.G. Woodhouse. Um, it went a little bit longer. It was pretty long. Um, but I don't know, maybe you guys enjoy the longer episodes. You're probably asleep by now, in reality. If you have questions, if you have suggestions for ASM article in the future, a person, a place, an event, you can always email the show at hello at sleepandrelaxasmr.com. You can always follow us on Tingles, the popular ASMR app. You can always check out our website, sleepandrelaxasmr.com. That's all for this episode. Thanks as always for listening, and take care.